0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome CXO and managing partner at Solutions Unlimited. He is the author of the wonderful book, Start Reverse. Welcome, André Viringa. Did I pronounce it right?
0: Yeah, I love the pronunciation and thanks for having me, Aidan. Much, much appreciated.
1: Let's jump into it because we have so much to get through. This is a brilliant book. I love what you've done here. You've combined so many different elements. You've taught deeply about the presentation of the book as well, which we might touch on. But before we go into the book, it'll be great to hear a little bit about your backstory, Andre.
0: I think it's relevant to know that my initial background is in hospitality. Um, I did hotel school initially in the Netherlands, uh, combined with an economics uh, bachelor. Uh, But I I really wanted to do more, uh, let's say, deep dive into hospitality management. So I I then went to Florida International University for a a hospitality management master's, uh, which gave me an entrance to four uh, hotel chains uh, good experience for hotel openings, which actually was a very steep learning curve. So I, I actually learned a lot how you should be leading a company and also a lot how probably you should not or not anymore lead a company. So uh, I was fortunate. And, and this company I'm now running already for for more than 30 years. So hospitality is, uh, is aging a little bit, but we keep it alive with uh consistently being involved in in new concepts which i'm sure we'll discuss later
1: and you talk about that you noticed a lot of the boardroom promises a lot of the buzzwords that were used around the boardroom table weren't translating into real life experience
0: No, and that's one of the learnings uh, that, uh, I mean, I had so many when I was in operational jobs, so many buzzwords, like you said, and I think it's called marketing mumbo jumbo, where you see brand promises, uh, which are simply not delivered, uh, first of all, to the customer or to the guest or patient or passenger in life, but also they're not delivered by for instance central offices or headquarters however you want to call them and if if you don't deliver it internally how can you expect your teams to deliver it to their stakeholders it's it's simply i'd say a marketing facade no more than that in in many cases not all of course
1: you talk about the philosophy of reverse thinking and re- reverse engineering the process of experience it'd be great to jump into that a little bit andre
0: yeah i think w- with reverse you you start in the words of stephen covey with the end in mind uh, whereby uh, instead of uh, what most companies do you start with the product and then a the logistical process and then you have uh, management and sort of working climate all influencing staff behavior with in Let's say the end, you have a specific customer or guest experience. I think that's traditional thinking. Uh, The vast majority of companies still do that, but you could, and I feel you should reverse that. Start with what really is your purpose and, and what identity do you want to bring to life? And if you got those two, you can translate that into what is the experience you want customers or patients or passengers to have, depending on what business you're in. Once you define that experience, you can specifically say, so what does that ask from the teams who create that experience? What kind of behavioral interaction do we want to build? Which can then be translated back very simply and articulately into, so what working climate would facilitate that behavior and what leadership will contribute to that working climate? And only then at the end... You think, okay, and what logistical process do we need? And what does that mean for our offering, our products, our services, our environment? So it's really going away from the traditional thinking.
1: We're going to jump into each of those separately, but before we do, the book is beautifully designed. And what I love that you did with the book is you thought about your own process and applied it to the book. It'd be great to just touch briefly on the structure of the book and how you did that.
0: Yeah, thank you for asking. I wanted it to be a whole brain. So it's really allowing you to read uh, from a left brain perspective. So it's structured. Every chapter of the the journey uh, has a separate color. But if your right brain, even in that structured approach, the color scheme will actually give individual readers a different experience if you're left brain or right brain. Then if you're like more the novel reader, you can reverse the book. You can start with a novel, and within an hour, you read about Josh, who is a a retailer, who actually, it says it's fictitious, but everything that happens that's described in that story, everything that happens to Josh, actually is uh, real experiences from myself working with clients in the field, Uh, but I made it a fictitious story, uh, so it, it, it becomes like a compelling read within the seven chapters there are separate sections so if you're a fast reader you will intuitively find your own fast way through the seven chapters Uh, i wanted it to be like a present so the colors the graphics the schemes they're all designed with great attention for does this come across like i want to have this book or i want to read to the next chapter
1: i think it's just great that. You opened up today talking about you saw brand promises weren't being delivered and then you developed a framework yourself. But Then you applied it to even the book. So you've thought of every touch point and you do this in the book as well. So we'll, we'll jump into that now. First, you talk about the world has shifted. It's no longer about the brands calling the shots. The power has shifted to the customer
0: yeah definitely and you could say where joe pine a great friend of mine and a partner talks a lot about the experience economy where joe and i also agree on is that it's even shifting from a experience economy also towards a purpose society where joe in his progression of economic value also says the next level after creating experience is to be transformational I think that's what a cool brand does that you're more than just a product provider or a service renderer, that you're able to actually mean more to individuals than just the purchase. And I just read a statistic this morning uh, from Eventbrite in the US that three out of four millennials would actually rather buy a cool experience than just buy a product, uh, a tangible product. So it's not about things anymore it's it's more about what is the experience i'm getting and if you can make it transformational i mean how cool can it be
1: absolutely i'm coming to you with some brand new stats andre as well i asked my two children eight and four (laughs) would they rather more toys or more experiences with the family and they both hands down within seconds said experience with the family, more experiences, you know, visit Lapland, this kind of stuff. So it's, it's in the blood of the new world. Nope. This idea of goods to show ego and to show I have things, people are letting go of that. So true. You know, you talk about the experience economy and that if the bar has been raised, say for example, it's Netflix and then an indigenous TV provider comes out with a player that is inferior to Netflix They actually don't really stand a chance, but their programming is going to want to be really, really good to stand a chance. Once the bar has been raised, that's the new bar.
0: Yeah, and what I always experience is that with, uh, let's say, clients, uh, partners in the fields who do a lot of efforts creating new products, uh, developing new technology, uh, rendering new services, whatever you can touch or see is copied within weeks, if not months Whatever I feel is bloody hard to take away, or let be to copy, and that's the power of uh, if you if you what we always say the shortest sales pitch for reverse is we help close the gap between what a brand promises and what is experience at point of experience, and uh, so closing that gap has everything to do with emotional connection and and virtually nothing with physical stuff.
1: To back that up even further, you talk about this that if we have a great experience, we might share it with a certain number of people but if we have a bad experience we'll share it with up to 15 people and this is the world we've shifted into that you will tell people and you can tell them in the public domain in a way that you can share it on facebook or whatever platform you wish to but the world knows about it pretty quickly
0: yeah, and it used to be four versus 15, huh? good versus bad experience. <laughs> you probably had a number of zeros. So it could be the 15 could be now 15,000 or maybe depending on your followers, 15 million that you're affecting. Uh, if you just uh, remember the the dentist that was uh, on, a, on a, a flight who was dragged away from the plane, uh, I think it was United, um, and that cost a damage in reputation of 2 billion US dollars uh, in, in let's say, uh, estimate of the value of the company within just a week. That's uh, where you see how massive impactful the uh, the experience is th- these days, and, and
1: especially if it's shared. Going back to that boardroom where people delude themselves, there's a, a certain delusion with a brand is delivering on the promise versus what people actually experience, and you you give some statistics on this where there's a massive gulf in companies that claim to give a great experience and customers that actually experience that in that way.
0: Yeah, that actually uh, we borrowed that from Bain Research, which is uh, I thought a fantastic insight. Huh? Whereby there's statistics varying from eighty to eighty-six percent of customers that are willing to pay a higher price for a great experience, whereby. If you ask companies that think they deliver a great experience, you get up to 80%. 80% of companies think they deliver a great experience, in which case only 8% of their customers would agree. So there's a, a huge delivery gap
1: you have a bad experience with a brand and then the brand starts trying to chase after you and you actually feel somewhat kind of angry against the brand. You're kind of going, well, why didn't you take care of me when you had me and you give a great analogy that it's almost like you're going out with somebody, you have a partner and then they break up with you and then you try and make it up with them. And it's just way too late.
0: It's like when you unsubscribe from a magazine, it's then when you get suddenly all the attention from the magazine they want you back they come with uh, promotions and discounts and that's exactly when your your husband or wife tells you i want a divorce and you then start saying hey but i love you that's a,
1: <laughs> here's some roses <laughs> that's a
0: bit late exactly so, and that's what i i I think it's so fundamentally stupid to start telling people are, are paying for years they're subscribing for years they're paying for years and never get any appreciation until you quit and then you get all the attention of the world so if and i think customer journey mapping is becoming more and more accepted in your in your journey mapping you should actually think of how do I start spreading delight? How do I start showing that I, I really care from the start and not when somebody breaks up?
1: And it's a great lesson even for employees as well. And we'll jump into that in a while, that they are part of the brand experience as well, and they should be appreciated and respected from day one. But firstly, before we go there, the experience in, in store, if there is a store, the retail outlet, because we've seen a massive disruption in retail, particularly in the States with, closures all over the place everybody blames amazon i I always feel this it's easy to blame amazon but the fact is and i know joe pine for example has met many of these companies or they've ignored the experience economy work that joe does for years in the usa exactly but now they're pointing and going oh well it's because of amazon it was them i mean they should look in the mirror first not through the window at amazon
0: yeah, it has nothing to do with Amazon uh, as a principle. Of course, Amazon is a disruptor, but if you don't see the disruption coming, then uh, you're, you're actually losing the sight on the paradigm that is shifting. For me, it's uh, which I also described in the book. Uh, it's 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 a fantastic example: the Swiss watch watchmaking industry, uh, who ruled the world for decades, who had ni- more than ninety percent market share. And then uh, when quartz technology was invented, people think it was invented in Japan, it actually was a switch inventor who brought it to many switch watchmakers. And in a secret convention, they all agreed, let's defy this invention, because it only has one moving part that can never be as precise as our watches. And in fact, it was hundreds, if not thousands times more precise. And then the guy actually persisted, and he displayed it in in a in a watchmaking uh, conference or an exhibition, but whatever. Seiko was there, and they saw it, they understood it, and the rest is history. They dropped to about thirty percent market share at the time, just totally missed the paradigm. And we can see a more recent example in the case of Nokia. When Apple came with the iPhone, <clears throat> the general idea within Nokia senior leadership was. Well, what can they do? They only got one one device, and we got more than 160 devices. Well, if you put all your R&D in one device, I think in retrospect we know bloody well what you can do with one device. So, in retail is is uh, basically the, the the big paradigm shift that is missed by many is that it's not about it's not about distribution anymore. It's not about products anymore. Um, yes. Of course, visual merchandising is important, uh, display is important, routing is important, store design, basically how the box looks and feels is important. But the most important is what is, you need to define what is actually the purpose of physical retail. And when working with partners, we, we sometimes, even on great brand level, um, I won't mention any names here, Uh, but really great global brands you see that senior leadership has a very either diffused view on what is our purpose of physical retail sometimes have no view it's just uh, they're just operating it and if you haven't got a purpose then you can already expect you can bring it to life and then you get as a consequence that basically in the store it's all about merchandise well duh it's not about merchandise anymore. It should be about how do you bring your purpose to life, and how do you actually, what reason do you actually give the customer to go through all the trouble to go to the physical store and actually buy it, where I can actually also buy it when watching the nine o'clock news, sitting behind my iPad and get it delivered within a, within the hour, or. If they're slow within a day,
1: say it was 20 years ago, say it was back when Joe, for example, wrote the experience economy, or when you started doing your work initially in Europe, you could understand that people could not see it. They couldn't envisage what the experience economy meant. There was no Apple store. There was no Nespresso stores where people could go in and touch it and feel it. But even still, when those game changers exist, those new companies, those experienced retailers exist, people are still asleep at the wheel.
0: If you've invested tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, in a physical retail structure in technology like 10 years ago, you need to be a bloody brave hero by saying, well, let's just depreciate all of that and let's start new. I think, honestly, in most cases, it's the best thing to do. But it's bloody hard to get alignment on that in the boardroom. What you do see is that the tankers and speedboats If you have a tanker, take a big consumer bank, for instance, or a big retailer, a big hospitality chain, or a big airline, what you do see happening is that more and more small initiatives are tested, and then you need to move away from the tanker. So we call it like sort of a speedboat approach, where you can actually test as if you are a startup. Create your own competitor is probably the only way to really survive, because if you keep going where you're going now, especially we talked about retail before,
1: we know what's going to happen. You can't turn your back on the revenue stream as it is today to take a punt on the future because the reality is nobody knows quite truly where the future is going, but you can send out some speedboats, as you say, as reconnaissance missions to try and see what's out there.
0: Yeah, exactly. And where we know it's going, especially in in the age of more disruptive technology, the importance of adding connectivity to that is crucial, and not only technological connectivity, but also if you have, for instance, this physical environment, take, for instance, take an airline. It's perfect. eh? For me, it was the first time when Lufthansa, for instance, said uh, the boarding is just with one person at the gate, and you get your express lane, and then you get your economy class, and it's like you do it all yourself. The first time for me it was, hmm, I'm not sure if I like this. It's very impersonal then you get through it and you think, this is bloody efficient, saves a lot of time, I like it. But then the Lufthansa way is that it's really, you're just being processed. So the efficiency is something I get used to, but how easy would it be if you then surprise and delight me while you're standing there anyway? So I think that's where the combination, where actually our whole society is heading that we're we're getting used to this technology we're becoming less and less forgiven so either it works or we disconnect and we zap Uh, but if it works that doesn't mean the job is done we need on top of it we call it the delight level in line with your brand
1: promise and i'm right andre in saying right so people will be wondering oh this is all well and good for the big guys but where this actually sits is a, it's a marketing thing because marketing is now more about meaning than ever before in a purpose driven economy but marketing supported by ceo level i mean this is an organizational boardroom discussion to make this happen
0: yeah i'm not sure if you want to call it marketing i mean it's more being true to self if you have a brand promise then you need to bloody live it and in most cases it simply doesn't happen you're setting yourself up for disappointment uh, if you promise for instance Let's say uh, surprise and delight. If that's what some companies are actually uh, advertising with, well, then then you raise the bar of expectation. If you create this great campaign and uh, you 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 lure people to come to your retail stores, and then you walk in and nothing happens, what is promised? I, I have a very recent example. It's like a casino company, and I, I'm not a gambler, but I thought. I mean, it looks so cool on TV. And then, okay, I did go into one of the casinos. And then you're all, all, almost immediately disappointed because you feel whatever I've seen, whatever I've been promised, it's not going to be delivered. So yes, you're right. In a way, it is marketing, but it's also common sense. And just really be true to self. What you state is something that your employees, your team should experience themselves so they can pass it on to your your, your audience. Very simple.
1: Yeah, and maybe we'll, we'll talk now about the power of purpose because authenticity and purpose is very much part of an organizational. It should be on the agenda massively today more than ever.
0: I think already if you start with the, the new uh, generations, Y and Z, I mean, if you don't have a compelling purpose, the good ones will walk on and you will end up with shift survivors, right? people who just are working for you because they need money or they want to have a job but not to contribute. And there are so many studies about what engagement does for you uh, in terms of productivity, in terms of sales. So the purpose of a company starts with finding people who really want to contribute to your business. Gen Y, Gen Z, the three most important things you can deliver is, is make them feel that they're connected to something that truly matters. Make sure that they're able to contribute and recognize them for their contribution. So, If you have no purpose, that's going to be bloody hard.
1: There's another thing here, Andre, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And you do touch on this in the book, and you do give a framework for people to do this. I really genuinely believe this one. A lot of younger workers, for example, will go, oh, I can't find a company that has a purpose that I align to. But you really do have to start with your own personal purpose. Sure. And then align to a company, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Uh, and and if you can't find a purpose that fits to you, then I think it's it's a shame or you're not looking good enough because I think there are it, it's, it's a good trend. There are more and more companies that have a purpose that at least the purpose you should relate to. If you look at Zappos, for instance, with delivering happiness, I mean, if you don't want to contribute to happiness, fine. Uh, but look at IKEA, creating a better everyday life for too many people. I think how cool is it that's something you want to get out of bed for now right? that you can actually create a better everyday life for the many people or coca-cola i'm not a big coke fan from the product but from a cultural and purpose point of view refreshing the world or inspiring moments of optimism and happiness those are i'd say compelling purposes that you want to belong to
1: flipping this around a little bit the game changers you talk about in the book they all have some common traits. It'd be great to touch on some of those game changers and why you see them as game changers and then what lessons we can learn from them.
0: Yeah, uh, and I speak about different game changers. Uh, We have game changers who are like uh, really technology game changers. Uh, But if you're looking at also in the traditional, take hospitality or take retail. I think Nokia, I mentioned before, uh, sort of lost the boat later on from a product point of view. But definitely was a game changer, and my partner Cliff Crosby uh, headed up Nokia Retail. Um, we set up, uh, I mean, flagship stores. And when I say we, it was Cliff with the whole idea for the concept and, and the product delivery. But it was all about the experience, and our part as Performance Solutions was to to bring it to life in a manner uh, in a manner that people thought wouldn't be possible. Uh, we went to Tverskaya in uh, Moscow where the first flagship store was opened where people thought, well, this won't fly. What we know, now know as the Apple Store experience, Nokia already had it before, was unbelievably successful. Uh, we went to Shanghai and, and Hong Kong. Hong Kong, three years in a row, the best retail experience. Why? Cool stores, but incredibly connected people. And we already, I think it was 2001 or 2002, we designed uh, the first uh, shopper journeys. And, and for the flagship stores, we actually had guest journeys where we deliberately said from moment to moment, what is the experience we want our guests to have? That was also magic. By calling your shoppers guests, something magical happens because you treat them in a different way.
1: That element of language becomes really important in an experience economy, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely. Uh, If you look at Citizen M, for instance, from a retail point of view, uh, I think we were involved from the start about nine years ago, where the purpose of Citizen M is really simple in two words affordable luxury. So it's not about, let's say, all kinds of five star frills. It's really about how do I make what people really want affordable. And affordable luxury is, for instance, free Wi Fi, is, for instance, Having very cool living rooms where you feel like you're in a, uh, a really stylish environment, but it's, it's very affordable. You take, for instance, your own beer as you do from home. So you walk to the kitchen, you take a beer from the fridge. All you need to do is you need your room key to charge it to your account. But you, you really do it like you would do at home. And I worked for a hotel change who would say home away from home, but that was boring. This is so alive, and it's, it's really uh, in a, done in a very affordable manner. So that, that purpose is more than, in most cases, a credo. It's lived in the design. It's lived in the service delivery. It's lived, lived in the, uh, let's say, the whole proposition that you, you get as a guest online Uh, from moment to moment, which I think is really cool.
1: And that last mile, right? So the last mile being the service delivery. So the person in a shop, and you talk about this, and I I actually was telling somebody today, I was going to talk to you on the show, and I gave this line to him. I said, imagine you walk into a store and you need to buy a shirt and you see a teller there talking to their workmate and they look up at you begrudgingly because you're disturbing their chat. (laughs) You don't want the memory of that shirt from that place, even if it's a great price. And then you go into a different store and somebody's on the phone and they look up for you, gently put down the phone and they come over and they apologize. And they say, sorry for keeping you waiting. How can I help? Where do you want to buy your goods? That's the difference right there.
0: It's no rocket science. I have a couple of great examples. Suit supply. This is like three weeks ago. I had a shirt torn at my elbow and I thought it was a bit annoying because it was my second shirt. So I took that second shirt back to the store and I thought, is this me? Am I doing something wrong? Uh, should I not move? What is it? Is it the fabric? Is it the series? And then he looked. He asked for my email address, looked it up in the system and said, yeah, I can see you, you bought it then and then. So here's a new shirt. And, and uh, we're not sure, uh, but I just want to, you to feel comfortable. So he was totally empowered, which I think is crucial in the store. No supervisor involved, no store manager. He was empowered to give me a new shirt. I said, well, it's the fact that it's the second shirt that made me come back to the story. So it was the second shirt? Yeah. So when did you buy it? I I didn't remember. He couldn't find it in the system. He said, you know, Maybe it's a bit longer, but uh, I could give you a second shirt for a 50% discount. So I took it. So for 50% of one shirt, I got two new shirts and he got an ambassador for life. And I've already told this example to many. For me, it's not about the freebie. For me, it's about the great example that this guy was actually empowered to make that decision. Um, So I remember this, this experience. Another experience is uh, when we went with the family uh, to Quebec, or actually we toured Canada. My daughter at the time was nine years old. I took her into one of the stores of Lush. I'm, I'm a great fan of Lush Cosmetics. Incredibly consistent. I've visited at least 80 stores around the world. So here I go with my little one. And uh, I wanted her just to, to, to see and smell. And then one of the retail sales retail sales associates approached her and said, uh something in english and i said to her well we're from holland so we can't really uh, my daughter can't understand and she asked me can you translate so i said sure and then she went on her knees started to talk to my daughter and looked at me for translation and i said well you know don't bother i'm already a big fan um i'm buying from lunch but but not on this trip we have three weeks ahead of us and she said with a big smile i'm not talking to you i'm talking to her <laughs> <laughs> so i had to translate well you can guess what i got for father's day when uh it, and this was like almost a year later i got a present from lush and a year later she went we were in Wiesbaden, in germany with one of her girlfriends and she said oh she saw a lush store in one of the shopping streets and she dragged her girlfriend in then 11 years old and said hey uh maybe you want to buy this for for our moms so they both bought something for mother's day and then i think this is so cool because you see how the retail sales show shit in quebec knowing that she would not be selling one dollar she made in this case directly and indirectly two fans for probably life that's what i think is it's all about
1: absolutely it's all about that and one of my colleagues in work was buying an engagement ring. So high price, high ticket item walks into a store. She said the ring she wanted was there, but the sales assistant was exactly like we talked about talking to a friend felt interrupted by a client, a possible buyer coming into the store, mm. ignored her, said that they would be available to talk in 20 minutes if she wanted to come back.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: I was like, well, my 10 cents here is do not go back because you're always going to remember that attached to the ring. Mm. You know, it's, it's like, it's like you with the shirt, you wear that shirt. There's a little bit of your memory attached to the experience of buying the shirt and the experience. And that, that piece is really important. Absolutely. That's what it's all
0: about. And you could say, uh, that- 85% is more environment and, and product and driven and it's only 15% people, I disagree. But even if it would only be 50%, then just deliver on the 15% because that's the only part that you cannot copy as a competitor.
1: And let's jump onto that because people will be going, yeah, but my co- company culture sucks. It's terrible. Again, it's something you identify in the book. This is what I love about this book. You've thought of every element of the customer experience including the workplace experience
0: yeah i think if you if you keep it simple i talked about the customer experience before you need to realize as a provider no matter what business you're in that the customer experience needs to equal the coworker experience and um, for that purpose i also think you need to realize that your co-workers are the ones who are closest to your customers. So in the book, I also write about reversing or inverting the organization chart. So if, for instance, and I'm always surprised, if, for instance, you want your floor managers to be coaches, uh, then, then why do you call them a floor manager? If you want supervisors to be, for instance, coaches, then simply don't call them supervisor, call them a coach. And that's the magic that happens if you're... Uh, putting your co-workers on one if you know what I mean, yeah. so you invert the org chart and, and your customers are on top and then the, the real level internal in the organization is co-workers are closest to the customers so they're on one then automatically your supervisor cannot be supervising anymore, it needs to be probably facilitator or connector or inspirator or uh, uh, Sherpa, whatever you want to call it so that inverted hierarchy is crucial that, you know, to create a cool culture, I actually need to build a deliberate leadership style that facilitates the culture, that triggers the behavior we want to have to be able to deliver the experience we want our customers to have. And it's I feel it's no rocket science. And that's what some CEOs we speak to. They see the the approach and say that, well, this is bloody simple. And the first time I heard that, I was, okay, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? But now I come to peace and I think it's a very good thing. Because if you have like 9,000 stores, if it's bloody simple, then you have a a fighting chance that you can actually uh, uh, roll this out and and bring this to life in in 40 countries and X thousand stores. If it's complicated already at the design, well, good luck.
1: Isn't it crazy that it it does sound simple to people when they hear it, but still it doesn't get executed. And it's back to that 84% versus the 8%, the customer, the gulf between what, what people think, what companies think they're delivering versus what people are experiencing, the customer is experiencing. But I was thinking there when you were saying about this, the reverse leadership in a way, and that the leader almost becomes... This idea of a servant leader, where if it's the business, if it's the experience economy, and if business is now theater, the leader's job becomes to set the stage, not to take it.
0: Absolutely. And uh, we should do away with ego. And if you talk about, uh, we we, we in in the book describe epic leadership as uh, empowering, purpose-driven, inspiring, and coaching has nothing to do with ego. And that's where if you're looking at epic leaders, true epic leaders, feel that they gain power by empowering. If you look at traditional managers, they feel like they're giving up on power by empowering. And it's sad in a way, because then you you trap yourself in a vicious circle, which is going to be of benefit to nobody. The more your team grows, the more, let's say, the better a leader you are.
1: I mean, it's like sports, Andre. I see it a lot like sports where, the less ego in a team, the more successful they are because yeah. they're all aligned and they're all working at the same level or the same mindset. And when you can align a, a team of people, no matter whether it's sports, whether it's a, a nonprofit, whether it's a governmental agency, or it's it's the most commercial driven company in the world, when they're aligned, experience is a, immense.
0: Totally. And that's in a store doable if you invert the organization chart Uh, And and if you do it uh, basically top down, uh, you feel, and I still come across managers that feel that they're indispensable, that they need to be there. Like the coaches in the field I like your your metaphor. If I'm needed as a coach to consistently tell my team what to do, then I also know what's going to happen if I'm not there. If a store manager feels I need to be there or a unit manager, I need to be there to put everybody in position and and instructing tasks rather than providing inspiration and freedom, then yes, then I I actually know what I find. If I take a week off and I come back and then I can say, you see, uh, I go away for one week and see what happens. Well, very sad story. Uh, But this can be different, and I always say you get the team that you deserve.
1: And you got to look in the mirror when that happens. And, and I realize this myself. I, I've done this where you become a bottleneck to the team. Yeah. But again, going back to the sports analogy, a coach cannot take the field, and you can't keep sending on messages with the water bottle carriers onto the pitch. You need to give a framework. But this is why I, I love the purpose-driven economy you talk about because you give the purpose of the team the values the ways of working, and then you point them in the right direction, and then you give them a framework in which to work, and then you get out of the way. Absolutely. I think it
0: starts already uh, from the, the the attraction point. Huh? What kind of uh, coworkers are you attracting? If you find people who are deliberately choosing you for the purpose you have as a brand or as an organization, and you, you cast them for who they are, rather than for the experience they have. And then you allow them to be themselves. Actually, you probably tell them you have to be yourself because we hired you for who you are, not for your resume. And then you make sure that you have no managers that get in the way uh, with instructions and with uh, scripting and briefings that make the experience less authentic then beauty will happen uh, on an everyday basis. And I, I'm, I'm actually sad to say that I've written in my career two meters of training manuals, and this was more than 30 years ago, with all kinds of SOPs. And in retrospect, I'm thinking, what the bleep have I been thinking? <laughs> because how on earth can you... Now we had in one hotel, this was for a Hilton hotel, more than 900 standards just for front office alone. Uh, and I was so proud at the time, but now I think... I mean, impossible. You're setting up a team for failure because you 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 think you can script all the future behaviors. So if the guest says A, then you say B. But what if the guest says B? Uh, I'm stuck. So it's more like surprising. If you want people to be surprising, then there's only one way. Don't script it. Don't brief it because it's per se not surprising anymore.
1: Yeah it falls back to this idea of being purpose driven or having a direction a north star to follow and go well what does that say because then after that you make the right decision if you've hired properly and as you say birds of a feather flock together the right people yeah. will come together and th- and that's what you feel like i was saying this to somebody recently when I, they asked me what i was reading i was reading your book and i said have you ever walked into a coffee shop you you probably have a favorite coffee shop it's probably not the furniture may have a part part to do with it it's probably not entirely the coffee yes it has a part to do with it but it's the ambience and what does that come from it comes from the mix of everything it's the server it's the coffee it's the experience it's the theater and it's that's why you go back to that coffee shop
0: absolutely i think that's the secret of starbucks uh, when howard schultz was thinking of how about i create a cafe where it's all about the experience and by the way we're selling coffee um I'm not a coffee drinker but I've been told it's not the world's best coffee but they're bloody successful and uh, I think if you're able to create a cafe where people stand in line for not the greatest coffee but for a cool experience because you want it <laughs> to be long I'd say well done really well done
1: yeah and I, we'll, we'll talk quickly about because uh, we're running out of time designing in reverse and this idea of thinking in 5D thinking reverse is
0: recommending or, or requiring you to really take a step back from your your organization from your daily context um, we do the best designs really away. i like to speed both going away from the tanker we really want a a, a leadership team uh, to go literally on a journey with us uh, the best designs we do during leadership journeys Uh, where we go either in forests or beaches. Uh, We even did it in bunkers, deliberately away from daily context. And then what you need to do, uh, we we call it the 5D approach. Uh, It starts with allowing yourself to dream. And that's the first D. And dreaming of what is a future that we want to create, which helps you to find your true north, like you called it. Uh, What is your purpose? Uh, What is the identity we want to create? Um, Then the second D would be talking about defining. Uh, How do you actually define the journey ahead of you? Uh, What would be critical success factors? Uh, What KPIs do we want to, for instance, take net promoter scores? So what scores do we want to realize and by when? To then, if you got those two, Dream and Define, you can then design in detail Uh, what's going to be for instance the customer journey or the employee journey or ideally both to then adapt logical results from the journey critically be directing the whole process and directing not like uh, the the, uh, autocratic uh, managers but more the director as in the meaning of joe pine where you're setting the stage where you're actually providing freedom to the team to maneuver Uh, And the last bit is that the fifth D is really deliver, making sure that you have a team that is empowered to deliver, to truly own the delivery. Because if the team owns the fifth D, deliver, it'll happen. And then your gap between brand promise and delivery is virtually zero.
1: You give the fantastic quote by Maya Angelou. It would be great if you would share that with our audience.
0: It's not about what people say or what they do, but it's how people make you feel. That's what you remember. And I think that quote is is crucial. And that's exactly uh, applying to retail and hospitality. If you get into a store, it's not about the product. It's not about the, let's say, the verbal interaction. But how does an interaction make me feel? That is the reason why I would come back to what you said before, the coffee shop or the, you you probably meant cafe, not our Amsterdam coffee shop, Uh, the the retail store. That's the reason why Yeah, different experience. (laughs) That's the reason why you would choose yes for one airline and no for the other. When we talk about marketing you could say that with the traditional approach is that going further than just pushing sales, it's helping people to buy. Uh, For that purpose, you create a specific advertising. I think that's all traditional thinking. The real, and I I don't even think we should call it marketing. So reverse thinking for us, goes way beyond marketing. Uh, And I explained that before. Customering, uh, in in the words of Joe Pine, goes even further, did you say? And I think that's what experience is all about. What is the experience we want our individual consumers, patients, passengers, customers, guests to have? And if you if you're able to nail that, then one by one, and that's how I think you build communities, that one by one, people will want to belong to you, not because they have to buy from you. So if you get a competitor, nothing to fear, because you you, you you're in their heart. That's the true definition of customering.
1: Brilliant. We've mentioned Joe Pine a few times in the show. Joe was a guest, obviously, in a show before in the Experience Economy. But you're doing a masterclass with Joe together, and it'd be great to share that with our audience.
0: Yeah. 26 April, Hofdorp, Amsterdam, five minutes from Schiphol Airport. There are a couple of reasons to come. First of all, content uh, where we go in more depth on the the concept of reverse customering, but also we have a number of guests who are actually applying reverse customering in their industries, in their I think best practices that they're happy to share. We'll have a couple of workshops, so it's going to be great fun. So that that's today. Having said that, it's also that evening. So straight after that masterclass, you can go to Amsterdam, which is like 15 minutes from here, and we have King's Night which is a crazy experience. So there will be at least 1 million people in Orange on the streets, dancing, drinking, smoking, having fun. So talking about uh, interesting experience, that's actually called the Orange Experience. It's worth Googling it. I think it would be a nice uh, combo package, Aiden.
1: Lovely. And, and uh, <laughs> you've kindly as well offered the audience a promo code, which is in capitals, Inno show. 2018 and they'll receive a 30% discount i'd love if you'd offer one for our audience for amsterdam coffee shops as well <laughs> <laughs> andre it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you congratulations on the book it's an absolute fabulous one thank you for joining us andre Fierincha.
0: thank you Aiden. thank you big time